Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. So Divine Narrative, so Gary did the last three weeks, and if you haven't listened to it, I would encourage you to listen to the messages, because he sets us up this really well. And so he starts off in week one talking about creation. So creation, that God ends it with idea, is very good. So we point our lives back to the idea of this is what God wanted. And he says that you're very good. I mean, even reminded of that part of how God views us. And then in the second week, Gary talked about rest, that our identity doesn't come from our production. It doesn't come from us producing more and more and more and more. But it comes from this idea of rest in him, that our identity comes from God. That sometimes in our moment in our life, in our week, that we need to stop and remember why we're valuable. So in, in week three, we get to the fall. I think a lot of us even start our narrative about our lives based off of chapter three and not off chapter one, not about the good story. So in chapter three, the fall, but maybe the story is much more not about how terrible, how sinful, how wicked we are, but maybe sort of like, okay, how does God step into when we made a mistake? How did God step into Adam and Eve when they tried to separate themselves from him and hid from him? That maybe it's more about reconciliation and relationship. And so if we say this is a divine narrative, and that's a thread through all of Scripture, I love how Gary puts it, like we have 66 books written over a couple thousand years, and there's all these authors, but there's something tied to it, how God keeps revealing himself and who he is throughout the whole passage, all the passages of Scripture. And so if we were saying that this is the case, then as stories continue, that same line of thinking should follow through it. And so this morning I'm going to talk about the flood. You know, it's a story that maybe some of you that grew up in church, you know, we had the nice little storybook of the animals, or even if you're really old, a little flannel. Yeah, yeah, these beautiful animals. I love this. It's this cute story of mass destruction that we tell our kids. Like, it's mass extermination of the world. And I think as adults, we have to step back for a second, because it's like, okay, I do believe, like, maybe God is a good God and a loving God. So when you think about Christ, when you think about love and peace and sacrifice. And in the New Testament, it says like Christ is the same character as who God is. But somehow we get this image that we have maybe loving Christ in the New Testament and then we have an angry God in the Old Testament. And maybe there's something else going on there that we don't have to have that same image, the same idea. So maybe that those are the first readers of it, maybe because of how they read it, because when we read through the scriptures, like the first readers weren't someone that was born with a computer, born in this time of life, born with a, like what we what period talked about, a Western mindset compared to an Eastern mindset. That maybe how they viewed it would be different than how we viewed it in a way of pointing towards this divine narrative. So sometimes it's a step back a little bit and ask a better question. Because if you think about the flood, I think maybe if you you know, jump on and search flood, you get like this proof that the flood happened, which I think is great. Like, I think it's really interesting, the geology part and how there's all these flood stories throughout like all these different cultures and stuff like that. But there's a lot of effort put on proving that it actually happened, which is great. But maybe we also have to ask the question, a better question of why is this story within the Bible? Why did God want the story to be there? 
Because if he wants this idea of him being a good God, it's like he probably should have left this story out. But God included it. So why did God want us in there? So like I think when you look through scriptures, sometimes the best is step back for a moment and ask some questions about it. Like, what is the author trying to show here? What is going on in here? What is happening? So I think some of the stuff is the idea of like looking at scriptures, like what is God trying to share with us? Another thing question is like, what is God sharing about humanity? And so I think the first question I want to kind of maybe look at this morning is how did humanity get to the point of where God regretted making humans, making creation? Like God regretted what he did. And so where do we go from there? Like, okay, why? Because it doesn't really share exactly why, how humanity got to that point. We learned that humanity is violent and evil, but how do they get to this point? And so I actually want to start reading out of Genesis 11. So it's the story of Babel. Because this is the first story after the story of the flood where God steps into humanity and changes something. So maybe this kind of points a little bit towards what God shows that needs to be different. So it says in Genesis 11, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Least we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We can make a name for ourselves. So I'm going to throw this idea of sages out there. And so when I say I'm talking about sages, what I'm talking about is like Jewish, ancient Jewish teachers. And you can read stuff like in the Midrash. I'm trying to point to this idea of how maybe someone who was Eastern might look at this passage. Um, one of the ways that like a rabbi, like, like Jesus taught, was when there's something within scripture they want to point towards and get a point out, where we would prefer the hymn just to say, this is what you should take away from this passage. So you should understand point A, point B, Point C. One, two, three. This is what you should do. And so maybe it's these Jewish or these ancient um, writers did something a little different. So when they saw this part of this passage, they want you to focus on it a little bit. It might tell you a story along with it. So like where a question was asked to Jesus, and how did Jesus answer? With a parable, with a story. And so I'm going to read uh, Genesis 5 here. So this is when we first get introduced to Noah. And so it says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, and this was a long time, he had a son, and he named him Noah, and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord had cursed. So the sages looked at this passage here. They, maybe this here points to actually, maybe the reasons why humanity got to the place that it did. So what the sages taught was the idea that Noah had been at the plow that he created this thing that helped take care of the earth that was cursed. Because when you have thorns and thistles and all this stuff into the earth, it's really hard to grow things. So creating a plow, a system to take away all those things and be able to plant what you want, made life easier and more comfortable. And so in uh, Genesis 3, this is because God had cursed the earth, and this is what God had did. Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So we walk out of Genesis 1 with like things are good. There's, things are very good. And when we hit this part of the sin, 
like we have now he has like almost consequences. One thing is important to notice that when God curses things, he doesn't curse mankind. In this passage, we're talking about how Adam fell, how Adam made a mistake. He cursed the earth, that we have to toil. So is God being just mean here? He's like, well, you guys messed up, and now you're going to have to suffer. Or is God actually doing something good here? And so how the sages taught it was the idea of that Noah created the plow. And people got to the idea of they could create their own comfort because it was easier. Like, why would you want to toil if you could make your life easier and easier? But what happens when we maybe pursue comfort more than God? What if we, like, we're in the middle of something that's difficult? So instead of saying, hey, God, I'm going to turn towards you. I'm going to trust you in the middle of this. We go, like, I can fix it myself. You look at Babel. Babel's like, hey, brick, great. Like, we can build our own place. We can do what we want to do. We can build a name for ourselves. And so the sages taught as humanity it moved forward is they kept seeking their own comfort. They kept turning away from this idea of toil in their life and pursued their own wants and own needs to make themselves comfortable. If you think about your own maybe spiritual life, weren't there moments so that you knew that God showed up, that you knew God was real, God was there, that you turned towards God? You probably turned towards God when things were difficult and things were hard. Maybe you realized that you got complacent as things maybe were comfortable and things were easy at the moment. But in our lives, as we kind of keep pursuing this idea of comfort, that maybe we back away from actually pursuing the thing that actually makes everything better. Our connection with God. Everything points towards Him. Um, if some of you know, like part of my job is doing counseling. And so in the midst of someone's life and they're struggling with something, a lot of times how we've created patterns in our life have been to move away from discomfort. So we do everything that causes like, okay, I'm going to do something that makes me feel better. And so we do that through addiction. We do that in a way how we have our thought patterns in our life. And so when you take some, someone, maybe that struggles with like pornography, is because it makes them feel good for that moment, even though they hate what they do. But they feel good for that moment. So as they feel discomfort in their life, they go, oh, the brain goes, I know it makes you feel better. Go do this, do this thing. But in the midst, it actually destroys them, destroys their relationships, it hurts their family. So it's the thing that actually brings them comfort, it actually is destroying them. But we all do that in some sort of way. It could be food. It could be even the idea of like, I can't be by myself at all. I need to be distracted by other people. And so we turn towards things in our life and create this pattern of moving away from discomfort, moving away from things that are hard, and seeking the things that make our life easier. At least we feel better. I think we heard that a lot, just, you know, just do whatever makes you feel good. Like from a counseling perspective, it's like, uh, that might actually lead you down towards a path in your life that you don't want to be. And so we look at where the time of Noah that I would say in some ways, the idea that they pursued their own comfort, they took away the toil, they kept chasing something else. Maybe you look at the idea, like when you, like if you're a driver and you have your car, and when you first get your car, it's amazing and good, right? And then after a while, it becomes the thing that you hate the most when it starts breaking down. And then you get a new car that makes you feel good for a moment. 
and then it, over time, it's like you lose that feeling. But we keep chasing that feeling, believing something like the idea of a plow will make our life a little better. So it's really not about the technology part of it. It's about what we believe that the pursuit of something different in our lives will actually allow us to feel different or be different, but it destroys us. So we have this world where Noah is in now, and they pursued their own wants so much that it turns out violent and corruption. So let's go ahead and start reading part of the story of the flood. So then the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created in the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all the flesh and corrupted grown on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So he goes on to tell Noah how to make this ark. Uh, if you read it enough, it's, uh, it's mankind is what corrupt. keeps up over and over and over again. There's only one that is righteous, and that is Noah. And so, why do you get this idea of, okay, if you're reading this for the first time, like, okay, God's tired of us, we're done, it's over with. So if you were someone, let's say you place yourself as you were an Israelite that just left Egypt, you spent your whole life as a slave in Egypt, and now you're going to go out into the desert. Think how uh, Gary put it last week, is like, in the desert, God is taking Egypt out of you. So as an Israelite there, what you actually actually be familiar with is many different flood stories. Like there's flood stories in almost in all different cultures. And so as an Israelite there in Egypt, you probably have heard the Egyptian flood stories, or the Mesopotamian flood stories, or the Samaritan flood, Sumerian flood stories. But maybe when God shares his flood story with his people, he's trying to point towards who he is. So if you take that Mesopotamian flood story, it's about the god of thunder and the gods of storms, these major gods that are tired of mankind and want to kill them off. Sounds familiar. And so you have the hero of the flood story, that he's the one that he builds a boat, puts animals on it, and defies the gods and saves humanity. Because that's the kind of the leading that you would think, okay, so we have Noah. So he's going to somehow, like, okay, but we actually have a God stepping into the story of Noah, like how to save him and save his family and save humanity. It's not many gods. It's one God. So when you read some of the ancient literature, and you'll find this all over the Old Testament, and I would say, like, it's a one uh, wonderful way for you to study the Word of God, is if you hear, like, something, you're like, I felt like I just read that. Like that phrase or that idea, like I think I just read that. So what the, so like for us, what we would want is the idea of someone writes something, they give the point, they back up their point and give us a conclusion. So we could read the conclusion and know what the author wants to take away from whatever's going on. So like if you read research, like a lot of times you actually just skip down to the conclusion, like okay, just give me the answer, let me get what I want. But that's not how the ancient writers did that. 
So they wanted to have you like seek out scripture, like a gym, and find and spend time with it. And so what they do use what's called a chiasm. So a chiasm is it's a literary tool, like you like a chiastic structure. And so it would give you one element, and then later on there'll be another element that kind of match or similar. And then there'll be another element, and then before that first element, it'll be another one, and so on and so on, and it will point towards something in the middle. And there's uh, there's some wonderful stories in the scripture that the author points to something that like we just don't catch because we were like, what's the point of the story at the end? But the author points to something actually in the middle of the story itself. And so this one is uh, I pulled out a lot of the other elements within this chiasm. So you could actually go from the middle of the chiasm, you can go probably about 13 elements up one direction and 13 elements the other direction down. So we actually the 14th, the number 14. Um, right in the middle. And so we have the seven days and seven days and 40 and 150, then seven days and seven days and 40 and 150. And right in the middle of this, what the author is trying to point to is that God remembered Noah. Which is an odd thought to think about. Did God forget about Noah? The God of the universe that knows everything? Was God so busy like with a storm and rain stuff and something else going on that he forgot? Oh yeah, that Noah guy. I forgot about him. Like, no, no, God knows everything. God is God. So what does he want us to take away from this part of it? That God remembers us. Like he remembers humanity. As Noah is on the ark, in the middle of the storm, it's dark. All he sees is water. Like no idea, like, what is the conclusion of this? That God steps into the story. So God remembered Noah. So if you're that Israelite reading through this, you're out in the desert, is you all you have is sand around you. Like, oh, that we have a God that in the midst of even something difficult and where we probably made our own conclusion of what should happen here, like maybe we should be destroyed. Why should we exist if all we have is corruption and violence? That's not a good life. But in the midst of hardship and difficulty, God is still there. That God is with us. I think it's important to look at your own life in this way. That in the middle of everything that's going on in your life, and I know some of you are going through very difficult things, very hard things. The question is, can you trust a story in the middle of all that? When you have your whatever waves, your storm, what's going on, even the idea of like Noah was actually obedient and created the ark and everything else, and then this is where he sits. Can he sit there and say, like, okay, God, in the midst of all this, can I trust you? Because it seems like if you don't step in, if you don't do something, humanity is over, my life is over. That even your own stuff going on right now, can you stop for a moment and say, God, do you remember me? Because that's the type of God that we serve. In the midst of our hardship, in the midst of our difficulty, God says, I am there. I still remember you. So what we have going on after that verse of God remembered is we actually have a repeating of the creation story. I'm going to really a lot of detail about it, but there's a piece of idea of like the, the water separated or is land in the water separated out. And there's a bird that filled the sky and the animals on the land. 
And so we have God saying, okay, there's a creation, there's something new coming. After this moment of almost destruction, that God is going to do something new again. And so if we were to read the Genesis 1, like day 7 should have been something about day of rest. But we get something a little bit different here in the flood story. This idea of covenant. So part of the passage, if you read it through, there's a lot more part about this piece that says, God says covenant a lot. But here's a one, a couple of verses here. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant. I am making between me and you and every living creature. With you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So in ancient society, when there's a covenant between two parties, you had the greater party and you had the lesser party. And so it was like the idea of you wanted to buy land or take something over or something like that. So if you're the lesser party, you'd go to the greater party, make this agreement, this covenant between the two of you. And it was the responsibility of the lesser party to hold on to the covenant. So if the lesser party didn't actually do the fulfillment of the covenant part of it, whatever agreed upon decisions that were made upon, if you don't agree with this covenant, what will happen to you? could be death. Um, there was like a, if you read through like Abraham, Abraham, like they cut animals apart. They walked through the animals that were dead, which is basically saying an imagery of, if I don't fulfill this covenant, like I will die. And so we have something different. So put your mind back as an Israelite out in the desert. And as you're reading this passage or hearing this for the first time, you're like, oh, wait, this doesn't make sense. I'm just a human and there's God. I am the lesser and he's a greater. But why is God the one taking responsibility for the covenant, for the sign of the covenant? And so the sign of the covenant in this passage is a rainbow. So in the Hebrew, there's actually not a word, like it's not rainbow. This is the word bow. And so if we think about the imagery of a bow, you place yourself in the ancient society, a bow would be like what? Bow and arrow. So if you were to think of a rainbow or a bow on the ground, what direction would the arrow be pointing? Towards God. What direction should it be pointing towards? Like humanity. Like if we fail again, if we mess up again, like we should have the consequence of whatever is going on. But what God is saying to his people, he's saying to us, is like the imagery of a rainbow, the sign of the covenant, is if this covenant is broken, I'm not going to flood the earth. Actually, I will take on the pain itself. I will take on the destruction myself. The arrow is not pointed towards the earth. It's pointed towards God. And maybe as you think about this a little bit, you can see this divine narrative that starts popping up through scripture about a God that steps into humanity, keeps creating relationship and creating room and taking on the responsibility of the covenant. That where we should go, like, oh, we should have the consequences. We do have consequences to sin in our lives. That's true. Like we make mistakes and we have to deal with whatever those mistakes might be. But the destruction of the world, God said, he'll take on himself. I think it's important, like, if you look at yourself and your own life, of realizing, hey, maybe my relationship with God, even though I do make mistakes, that God's not out to destroy me. That God might have taken on the pain himself on the cross and given me something where I can find reconciliation. 
that he can bring me back to this idea of this Genesis 1 story, that things are good, that I'm not stuck over here with my sin. I'm not stuck here with just sitting in my own muck. I have a God that calls me out of, that loves me and cares about me, and in a sense believes that I'm actually very good, that there's something of valuable within me of his creation. So as you look at that Genesis story, like maybe from our 2000 perspective, is it seems like it's a horrible story of death and destruction. But for that Israelite reading that story or hearing it for the first time, it's actually something that's very good. It's actually something that's maybe gives them hope. That, okay, if I mess up, if we mess up as people, God's just not going to always destroy us. Maybe there's something good. This God is different than the gods of Egypt, different than the gods of Mesopotamia. Now, all these other gods I've heard about that I can't really understand, we have a God stepping into our lives so we can actually know that cares about us in some way. Still God. And so there's another like idea for how ancient writers would um, write, help you point towards things. And so it's very like repetition. But when I talk about the idea of like there's 66 books in the Bible and the history of it, that we actually see over 3,000 years almost that we get this repetition going on within Scripture. And so I want to point to this repetition because I think it's quite important because it points actually to Christ. And so the tie in Genesis 1 again in the flood story. So we have this repetition of water, some idea of the spirit, spirit, wind, dove, God's approval, new creation, and then temptation. And so we see this in Genesis 1, the water, Spirit of God hovered over the water. You see a new creation that happens. And God says, this is good, this is very good. And then we end up seeing Adam and Eve move into this idea of temptation. We see this in the, the flood story, that there's water. We have this imagery of a dove. We have this idea of new creation. We have Noah that gives incense. God approves of it. And then we have this weird story after Noah and his sons. We don't have time to go into it, but there's something there that they're tempted with, maybe grasping onto what they see that their future should look like. If you read the, the, the Israelites crossing over the Red Sea, same thing happens again. We see the Israelites going into the Promised Land. We actually see that same repetition happening again. We also see this repetition happening with Jesus. So in Matthew 3, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, gliding on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It's this idea of water. The Holy Spirit hovered like a dove. That God's approval. There's a piece of a new creation. Something God is doing something new here again. And then what do we happen after this? There's temptation that happens. I think it's important to note within all these stories of God interacting with someone's life, it didn't mean that everything was good afterwards. When the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, God says, I'm going to tempt you in the desert. 
So is this, this hard stuff that you're happening in your life? It doesn't mean that you're making mistakes and everything's all messed up because everything's not falling right into place. Maybe there's something there that you need to learn. That God might have done something new within you. Maybe there's something that you need to learn through it. Maybe trust the story as you go along. So if you want to get your communion ready, you can. So when we look at this imagery of the rainbow, that this arrow is pointed towards heaven and not to us. What I think about is Christ on the cross. That whatever's going on in humanity at the time, that God stepped in at the perfect time to do something different in a new creation. That where we can say, we can look at this and like, we should not have been the one that God saved, that Christ died for. Like, we should have taken the punishment ourselves. But that's not the case. That we have a God that loved us so much that he took on the punishment of our lives. And we see this throughout all of scripture. That God takes on some of that piece of what we think that we should have in our own life. So after like had Christ had was crucified and died and rose again, the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit was sent. Another way for the Holy Spirit is a comforter. And maybe this morning one thing that you can look at in your own life is where do you seek comfort? Do you seek it in the things, in technology, something that might happen in the future of your life? Or do you actually turn your life towards Christ, towards God, that God is a comforter? Does it mean that's going to be easy? Does it mean all the problems in your life are going away? But it points your life towards the right direction. That's something that good, that something can be deeper and better and more meaningful. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.